You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Migration, as you all know, is a fundamental fact of human life. It's always been, it always will be. But it's un, you know, undoubtedly also a fact of life that over the past few years we've seen flows increase and you know, pressures grow you know, to the point that we have 244 million migrants in the world today. But we also know that migration is a critical driver of economic and social development because it incentivizes growth, it provides opportunities for all. Um, but this is not where the public debate is. Um, and in fact, you know, we're only too familiar with the challenges that our governments are in navigating the trade-offs between you know, migrants and their, you know, and their host communities and, and how difficult it is you know, to make this uh, a, a really palatable and constructive you know, debate for many politicians. And hence, you know, the lockdown at the border you know, between US and Mexico, you know, the toxic debate that we have in Europe around you know, migrants trying to cross the Mediterranean. So this conversation is particularly important. And we're really proud that ODI you know, of uh, you know, hosting the Human Mobility Initiative that is led by my colleague Marta Foresti. And it is building on the, the work of that initiative that we've organized the debate today. On your chairs, you all have these cars that really summarize the work that um, at ODI we have done on migration and the SDGs. And this is the lens that we're taking for the discussion today to really see how we can you know, interrogate better this question and see how we can together unlock the phenomenal opportunities that migration really does offer for development. With that, Martha, over to you to chair today's event. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Sarah, and uh, welcome you all. It's the first time that I see this uh, British Airways style video for uh, here at ODI for the, the, the instruction and safety. It's really cool. Um, uh, welcome, everyone. Um, I'm very pleased to have this event today because I've been thinking, we, you know, as some of you know, at ODI, we've been working on migration and development the last few years. Um, and I remember in the early stages having a conversation with some of you in the room, like my colleague Sheila, for example, here about you know, the real importance and need to, to move the agenda forward on migration for development and, and being far less timid about it and engage um, in, in the policy and practice work. And today we're here to report a little bit where we are on that journey with some, I think, hopefully some messages about where we got to and what's going on in different parts of the world and in different agencies and also what to look forward to in terms of concrete um, uh, practical steps. Um, let me begin by stating, and I'm very happy to be, uh, to be challenged on that, but we just had a, a bit of a, a conversation over lunch with some of you, that uh, when it comes to migration as a positive driver of development, the evidence is pretty clear. Uh, we, have, you know, we can have you know, debates about the nature of it and how applicable it is everywhere, but there is a real sort of case to be made that as development economists have led on the fact that the potential of the fact that people move to improve the achievement of development outcomes is... <laughs> is great. And my assessment, having also spent a bit of time with some of the development agencies in the last uh, few months, is that we're also learning to make the case, um, navigating the complex political landscape that exists in different countries. In some contexts, it's easier than others. You will you know, we'll hopefully pick up on how in this country there are interesting um, you know, debates that, in a way, Brexit has unleashed in relation to um, um, you know, the role of uh, uh, migration, immigration to, to the economy. But we are learning to make that case about in what ways the fact that people move uh, can help achieve development outcomes. 
Uh, we are now at a particular crossroads where having, having mastered or having made some progress of framing the debate in policy terms and having put in place some framework, including with you know, a certain amount of effort and drama, the Global Compact for Migration at the end of last year, the policy landscape is, is, has made significant progress and we are now at that moment where that needs to be translated into practice, into operations, into programming, into interventions, into money being allocated and spent. And this is where I would like to, to shift the debate a little bit today, although we will begin by doing a bit of a, 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 an overview of uh, where the policy conversation uh, is. So we'll run this into a conversation in two parts with my fellow panelists, which I'll introduce in a minute. In the first, uh, we will begin to, you know, so to, to paint a broad landscape of the debate around migration as development strategy. And in the second part of the debate, I'm going to ask all of them to help us to, 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 to come to some very concrete examples of what's going on in different countries and in different agencies. Um, I've got with me today um, certainly four of my sort of fellow travelers uh, in the last few years, with some of whom we've traveled from an early, you know, from the beginning of this uh, adventure. Some, like Barbara, we have become uh, sort of, you know, she's joined our effort in, 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 in recent times. But let me first introduce Pietro Mona here on my left, who is the Ambassador for Development, Force Displacement and Migration at the Swiss Federal Department of Foreign Affairs. Uh, but in, in fact, Pietro has been one of the driving forces of the debate on migration for development for many, many years, um, also as part of the Swiss Development Agencies, where he was the deputy head of the Global, global Program for Migration and Development, that those of you who have engaged on migration and development issues in the last few years knows has been probably the most you know, powerful and influential policy actor um, in, in, in this space. Um, in his role as ambassador, Pietro has also led the Swiss delegation in the negotiations of the Global Compact for Migration. And before that, in his role in the Swiss development agencies, he's followed the negotiations of the Agenda 2030 and the SDGs. We then have Shanta. Devarajan, who is the Senior Director for Development Economics at the World Bank, so he's basically the boss of all the research that happens in economics um, at the bank, uh, but he's also a, board of our, a member of our board, he's one of our trustees here at ODI, and importantly he had a number of roles uh, and have a you know, very distinguished career at the bank, and he was the Chief Economist first for the Human Development Network, South Asia region, the Africa region, and most recently for the Middle East, so he's learned a thing or two about navigating the politics both around the world and uh, within the World Bank, and we'll hear a bit more about that. Barbara uh, Rambosek um, is a Director of Gender and Economic Inclusion at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, and she leads the EBRD's efforts and projects uh, that looking at uh, sort of integrating economic inclusion and gender in their operations. And the reason why I invited Barbara to be with us today is precisely because EBRD is one of those agencies that are really approaching this debate from a very operational angle, and I think offers a fresh perspectives on, on how to go about it. Barbara has also helpfully worked um, in different parts of the world, the Western Balkans, the Middle East, and Asia, but also urban regeneration programs here in this very city, where I think issues of sort of immigration and how they shape the local economy are, you know, a matter of day-to-day, -day, um, of day-to-day -day life. And then. On screen, once again with us, is um, my sort of friend and fellow conspirator, Michael Clemens, that most of you have probably heard about. He's the co-director of the Migration, Displacement, and Humanitarian Policy Program and senior fellow at the Center for Economic Development. Um, he had, has a very distinguished career and been affiliated at various universities, including Georgetown University. And he was a visiting scholar at New York University and is one of the leading world economists when it comes to the evidence debate about migration as a strategy and as a driver 
of development. And I'm forever grateful to Michael because from the early days of our engagement in this debate, he always encouraged me to move into this policy space with conviction. Um, and I very much look forward to uh, discuss with you once again, um, uh, Michael. Um, but let me begin, as I said, for this first round, and I'm going to ask all of you to be a little bit brief so that we can have an interaction with our audience, both in the room and online. A reminder to all of you, if you need it, that you are on the record, you've been streamed um, live, um, and we will get questions from our online audiences from all over the world. Um, but let me begin with you, Pietro, because I think it's worth sort of beginning with um, a bit of political insights of where we got to today. So as I mentioned earlier, you've been engaged um, more than many others in this debate on sort of trying to bring migration to the heart of the development action and debate um, in, for many years, and you've worked in the multilateral system in the lead up to the SDGs uh, and the New York Declaration and then the Global Compact. So where are we in 2019 after all these efforts um, of all those years um, at the international level to make migration a real um, and you know an and important agenda in development in the development uh, enterprise? Well, <coughs> thank you very much, Marta, and, and thank you also for, for having invited me. There will be obviously um, a lot to, to say about um, where are we now and how we, we, we got there. And, and in fact, I'll try to be brief and I just want to pick out three, in my view, key moments that are, in my view, quite uh, exemplary of where we are at the moment. The first one is actually, uh, when we talk about migration development, we could go back quite a lot, but I, I want to start just by one example around 2005, 2006, the first high-level dialogue and the GFMD, and how, in fact, they came about being about migration development. The first high-level dialogue in the GFMD was the Global Forum on Migration and Development. Now, to be a bit provocative here, migration and development back in 2005 and 2006 were mainly a political fig leaf. Because when we actually go into the debates at the high-level dialogue or the GFMD, it was a lot about migration and not so much about migration development. And also, very few development actors in the mix. So it was a political fig leaf to overcome a decade-old decade divide between the Global South, to be a bit simplistic here, but I have to be given the time, the Global South who wanted to push for a migration debate at the multilateral level in the Global North who didn't want to. Migration de development sort of became this fig leaf again that allowed for a safe space to start talking about migration. But it was by and large debate about migration and not about migration and development. Nonetheless, and don't get me wrong, the GFMD and the high-level dialogue have had tremendous success. Maybe not so much in mobilizing the development actors, but it pushed us towards, and this is sort of uh, um, towards the 2030 agenda and the inclusion of migration in the 2030 agenda. And that is also mainly because there were some people in the room here as well, but also colleagues in Bangladesh and the academic fields and so on, who didn't want to submit to this fig leaf notion of migration development. They persisted in pushing for migration development and against certain odds, managed to get migration in the 2030 agenda. And David, Donnie, you're here, you can testify to that. 
it was an uphill battle. In 2013, everybody told us, you're crazy to try to push for migration in the 2030 agenda. And it took you, and in particular also another Irishman, Peter Sutherland, to get where we are. So this is the political sort of the build-up. This then led us to a second phase, which in my view is a bit of a political or almost philosophical divide between pragmatist and purists. This is the phase 2015-2018. Why pragmatists and purists? Well, with the adoption of the 2030 agenda, the purists had what they wanted, migration recognized within the, the development agenda, sustainable development agenda. And that could have kick-started an entire process where the, the, the combined development actors, development donors, but also planning commission and so on, engaged on migration. The world took another spin. Migration crisis, so-called 2015-2016, the summit in 2016 on migration and, and refugees, and then the decision to develop or to negotiate uh, the two global compacts. And this is, I think, where there is the philosophical divide. The Global Compact, I would dare to say, for purists, is not really <coughs> what they wanted to see. The migration development side is there, but is mainly there from a root cause perspective. So how to curb irregular migration. That is the main angle that it takes in the Global Compact. And so the purists on migration development side say, well, it's not really what we wanted. The pragmatists would say, well, the migration debate has evolved, and curbing irregular migration, the root causes, is part of it. And this will then allow us to develop a migration and development debate by bringing in migrants as factors for development and so on, and trying to shape within the context of the political, con uh, political debate immigration development that we're in. And I think this divide is, is something that certainly sort of characterizes where we are at the moment. Because, and this is the third phase, and this is actually your question, where are we now? In my view, we are at the crossroad once more. But a crossroad that, that, that will actually impact much more than migration development. Because the way that we address the challenges and the opportunities around migration very much also impacts our credibility, for example, as European countries, but also as international actors in the multilateral arena, for example. It very much testifies to our political willingness to uphold the principles of the 2030 Agenda, and I would add also of the Addis Ababa Action Agenda, by perceiving sustainable development not as a north-south, but as a universal challenge and an, 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 an universal task for all of us. So the way that we address migration development, with all the political context that we're in, with all the tensions that we see both within Europe, but also between continents, Africa, Europe, Latin America, North America, this will define us as international actors, this will define us as credible actors in multilateral system, uh, settings, this will define us as um, moral leaders when it comes to human rights, when it comes to development principles, so I don't want to be too dramatic about it, but I think we ha are here really at the crossroad when we tackle migration. The way we tackle migration development, we can go two ways. We can either follow a nationalistic, closed-down policy 
where we took where we go the road of conditionality, where we threaten to stop international cooperation if countries don't cooperate with us, and that will impact our credibility in many other fields. Or we can embrace the principles of the 2030 agenda, the principles, in my view, also that is underlining the global compact on safe, orderly, and regular migration, or the Addis Ababa action agenda, and we can shape partnerships with the Global South, with uh, our directors, with cities, with academia, um, with youth organizations, really live up to the spirit of 2030 agenda and shape migration development in a way that really contributes to development as we know it can. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. That's precisely what we needed. Um, um, thank you for sort of giving us a bit of history and the history of something that begins as a fig leaves and land, lands us to this really important crossroads where we can you know, collectively make decisions to go to be on the right side of history, so to speak. So, Shanta, on that, I mean, it's been uh, a sort of a, a bit of a mystery to me and to others for a long time that uh, given the consensus and the evidence around the potential benefits of the fact that people move brings to development outcomes, particularly to economic development outcomes and productivity, um, it has been ignored so much uh, by the development community, by development agencies for, for, for such a long time. In fact, in my view, it's only from 2015 onwards that, this, that you know, there was a momentum to bring, uh, to bring this debate, not just within the migration community, we just heard uh, Pietro says, but now you know, making it a real priority for development action. So tell us a little bit about why it's taken up so long, but more importantly, where we're going next from the heart of the World Bank. Well, thank you. And uh, I want to congratulate you, Marta, on the, uh, this session, and in particular the title of the session, which is Migration as a Driver of Development. Because I would, I would, in fact, go one step further and say migration is development. I mean, if you think about it, when we define development, we, th we define it as people moving from low productivity activities to higher productivity activities. That's the structural transformation that all countries uh, are, are trying to achieve. Well, that's what migration is, people moving from low productivity activities to higher productivity activities. In fact, in many ways, the, the, scale of the scale of the increase in productivity is much higher than all the other development interventions that we're talking about. I mean, if, a, if, a, if an Ethiopian moves to Italy, his or her productivity goes up seven times. Now, you add up all the other development activities that those of us at the World Bank and ODI and everywhere else <laughs> are working on, you know, agriculture and health and education and transport and water, and you add up the productivity increases of all of those, don't, they don't even come close to that sevenfold increase. So this is the development instrument if we, if we, if we want to take it seriously. Uh, and that's what the evidence that we've been putting out, uh, including the work of Michael Clemens over here, uh, has, has, been, um, uh, has been saying. Now, the reason why we haven't seen that much discussion about actual policies is that most of the policies that are needed are in the developed countries, are in the rich countries, the receiving countries. And the World Bank doesn't lend to rich countries by definition, um, uh, even, uh, even more so, I would say, part of the World Bank takes taxpayer money from rich countries and gives it to poor countries. So you can imagine if those taxpayers are upset about migration, 
this can actually threaten some of the activities of the World Bank. So we are actually in a very difficult situation here where uh, the, the, some of the most important things we can do for development is currently receiving uh, political resistance, shall we say, in the, uh, in the receiving countries. Now, we've done some more work on that, and I think it's important to try to understand why, when there's so much evidence, including evidence that it benefits the, the, the receiving countries, that wages can actually go up, uh, that uh, 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 contributions to the, to the treasury go up, and, and so on with, with migration. Uh, why is it that there's so much political resistance? And I just want to use this to advertise one of the research products from my department, uh, because we did a study uh, on this called Moving for Prosperity, where what we found was that while all of the, the we found all of these, uh, f we confirmed all of these findings about migration effect uh, helping in the long run the receiving countries on a variety of dimensions, Migration occurs in concentrated doses. It's concentrated in space and in time. So you, what you find is that, for instance, high-skilled migration, something like 80% 80 80 of high-skilled migration is in just four countries, the US, UK, Australia, and Canada. In fact, in the US, within the US, it's concentrated in about a dozen states. Uh, mostly uh, around the coast. So that even though in the long run these, these migrants actually benefit the country, in the short run there is a dislocation. There's short run adjustment costs because there the people in that particular location where the, the flood of migrants are coming might actually have to move. They move usually move to another part of the country and eventually their wages go up and everything else. But that's a short term dislocation. And it's a bit like uh, like trade policy too, where there are some short-term shocks for, for longer-term gains. And I think that's the way to think about the political resistance, is that people are, are reacting to those short-term costs. But that means that the policy implications are also that we should find ways to compensate them for the short-term costs, rather than banning migration or building a wall, uh, if I could just choose a metaphor. Uh, <laughs> Um, right, so it, it, we, we have to be on the, uh, uh, trying to tailor the solution to, the, uh, to our identity of the problem. And th I think that's where the, the development community needs to go. Now, that said, I think the, 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 the World Bank has a challenge because we, we do all this evidence, we put it out there, try to communicate it, like I'm trying to do here. Um, and the question is, do we want to take an advocacy position? Um, which we do sometimes, but not very often, uh, where we, we look at the evidence and say, no, this, all this evidence seems to be pointing in one direction, so we want to advocate. And so we've discussed that, but as I mentioned earlier, there are some uh, issues because many of our larger shareholders are, uh, are having political difficulties in their own countries with, uh, with migration. Uh, so I would suggest that Maybe there's another way. Uh, and so I'm going to go out on a limb and say that it could be that the whole political and uh, ideological uh, stance on migration might actually shift uh, in the next uh, couple of uh, next few years. Just the same way that we've witnessed in history issues that we thought w that the world was on one side flipping all the way to the other side. Like 
slavery. You know, people were practicing slavery, and then all of a sudden it was illegal and banned, and now it's considered morally reprehensible. Or uh, giving rights to uh, voting rights to women, or civil rights to to uh, to blacks in the United States. So more recently, same-sex marriage, which is again considered something that we don't accept to a point where it's legal and the whole tide has shifted. It could be that, that from a moral point of view, people will begin to realize that uh, banning migration or curbing migration is a form of discrimination. It's discriminating by, by dint of your birth, of your place of birth. It's just like discriminating by your gender or your race or your sexual orientation, this is a form of discrimination, and we would consider it immoral. Uh, and at that point, you could see the politics shifting exactly in the opposite direction. And then you could start seeing these huge gains, these huge productivity gains from, uh, from migration. And I think one thing that the international community, including the World Bank, can do, it would be nice if we could influence that, but we may not be able to, uh, at least prepare for it. Because that's, the, and I think the stuff that, that Pietro uh, was talking about earlier too, is how do you manage a huge influx of migration if that happens, if the politics shifts in the other direction? And that might be not that far away. We're beginning to see, for instance, countries like Japan uh, uh, accepting migrants because of the aging population. They actually uh, uh, need it. So we might see a big flood, and let's, uh, let's all gear up and be ready for it. Thank you. Um, thank you, Shantan. This is a good segue to what I would like Barbara to help us um, uh, pick up and understand, because um, on these issues of the fact that the reason why the World Bank and others have not done much on migration is fundamentally because we are talking about a highly you know, politically sensitive issues in some countries that happens to be shareholders of the bank. Now, one of the reasons why the European Bank, the EBRD, is interesting is because it focuses on Europe and the neighborhoods, where those dynamics are precisely at play in terms of the, the various uh, stakeholders involved, but also because it's a bank that it's focused on attractive private investment for economic development purposes and therefore at, at, at addresses the issues from more of an operational end. And so tell us a bit more to begin with, a bit about your experiences as an operational bank in the business of, of sort of private sector investment, how you've handled similarly politically sensitive issues, like, for example, including uh, you know, gender, a gender dimension, the work that you do, and what you've learned about handling something where the politics are complicated. Because we, we hear so often that the problem with migration is politically, and therefore, Shanta says, we may not be able to influence so much of it and wait until the tide turns. But you've been sort of working quite hard from within to try to uh, change perceptions and practice. So tell us a little bit about what you've learned that we can apply to this, um, to this challenge. Thank you very much. So um, I'm going to focus, as you say, quite a lot on the operational side um, and, and drawing some of the um, examples of what we have learned at EBRD, um, integrating a focus on, on economic inclusion and, and, and gender into our operations. And I think a lot is about perceptions. Um, I remember when, um, when I joined the bank, and actually Eric is, is over there who, who hired me um, in, into this role, um, it was all about um, what does it mean, actually, to, to, to start focusing on gender, to start focusing on economic inclusion. We are a private sector investment bank. Um, I was told things such as um, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. We're going to lose our AAA rating. This is not what we're about. Um, we, are, we are not the World Bank. You know, we, 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 we are different. Um, and so it took a lot of um, 
um, careful work to really to, 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 to create a road here. And um, there are four points that I would like to make in this context. The first one was very much um, um, data is important. So it was important to understand um, what are the challenges, um, how big are the challenges, how do they manifest themselves, and what can we actually do on an operational side. Um, the EBRD has something called the Transition Report, which is its annual flagship um, 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 report, where it looks analytically at some of the key challenges that, that the region faces. Um, at the time, we looked at um, um, inequalities in transition, um, and actually last year we looked at migration and, and, and skills. So again, we're using our analytical tools that we have in a way to, to, to prepare the ground um, for our shareholders, for, for um, also internally and, and as well as externally. Um, the second point then is um, to actually look operationally. How can we work with our clients through private sector engagement, through private sector action and investment to actually make a difference? What are the win-win situations? What are the challenges? What are the opportunities um, that can be created um, in terms of private sector engagement? So the private sector, as was mentioned before, needs talent. Um, talent is mobile. Opportunities very often are not. So how can we work with the private sector to to make the private sector an ally in the quest for talent internationally, um, because this is fundamentally what, what companies um, seek. Also, how can we open up markets? Um, and markets, um, again, um, come in different ways. Um, this can be about cashless payment option, options. It can be about um, alternative credit risk assessments. It can be about diaspora investments, um, all sorts of other um, infrastructure um, um, programs. So, how can we enfranchise the private sector in a way to, to strengthen their voice in this context? The third point is then um, linking the private sector into engagement on policy. Um, this is something that we, we are doing um, on the skills side in particular to really bring um, companies into conversations with, say, ministries for labor, ministries for education, to look at what are the skills that are required um, in the economy and how can national skills standards, skills verification programs, etc., be shaped to reflect those needs. Um, and the same would be about formal employment, um, um, access to credit, etc., for, for um, migrants. And then the last point is about partnerships. Um, the EBRD has a very specific mandate, a very um, private sector focused mandate, and within that we have a certain remit of things that we can achieve. But others, such as the World Bank, such as the UN, IOM, um, UNHCR, etc., can be very um, um, important partners and are very important partners. But it is about coming out of our comfort zone and not talk, talking always to, say, the ministries for finance, because that used to be our standard counterpart, but to actually go beyond that and to see how by adapting and, and, and slightly changing our operations, we can work with others uh, to make an impact in this context. Thank you. Thank you very much, Barbara. And we'll come back um, uh, a little bit later about some of the things that EBRD is actually doing and thinking of experimenting with in, in this space. Um, so let me come finally to Michael before we open up for a bit more of a debate. Um, and, and Michael, you've been sort of observing this debate and in fact have been sort of contributing in so many ways for, for a long time. And we just heard Barbara refer to the need for careful work and continuous engagement and, and sort of and winning the argument and, and, and working at the practice. But also Shanta's point about the fact that these are also bigger narratives that, uh, you know, where there is a short term, sometimes there are short terms, sort of trade, you know, the trade-offs between what, you know, the cost short terms and the benefit long term. 
how optimistic are you today, given that you know there are these, um, you know, these potentially these big shifts um, that we are uh, making progress? And of course, you are observing all this from the U.S., which is not exactly in a neutral space in some of this debate um, internationally. I know that you've been a bit dismayed yourself about some of that, but uh, internationally, um, how well are we doing? Thank you so much. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, great. So I, I, first, I, I just, I really appreciate your uh, allowing me to participate like this, being an uncomfortably large head on the wall. Uh, it, and it's uh, it's just a, a real pleasure. You know, you framed this panel uh, very modestly as here are some people to tell you about trends in the discussion. But really, th this is like a weather report where the, the, the meteorologist is the one who is making it rain. But the people who are physically in front of you are people who are who have been actively changing the discussion and, and at, at, at great uh, with great boldness and uh, and and taking great risks, and I, I'm just uh, I, I deeply uh, admire it. You asked me if I'm uh, optimistic. I'm I'm optimistic because the there's so much uh, uh, scope and expanding scope for innovation in this area to take advantage of new opportunities. You know, when you're when you're in a car that's speeding toward a wall, you, you can be optimistic in the sense that there is the driver has the time and ability to do things differently, uh, even if you're pessimistic that the driver is actually going to do the things necessary to uh, to avoid the collision. And I'm optimistic in, in that sense. The, the reason to be pessimistic, of course, is that the really in the broadest sense, the whole uh, aid industry remains structured uh, around an idea and and that idea is that migration and, and development are opposites uh, that people migrate when there's not enough development and as we get more developments there will be less migration uh, it, it's it, it's the reason we had flaming absurdities like when the UN wrote the roadmap to implement the Millennium Development Goals right after 2000 that document uh, mentioned migration twice only uh, once to say that migration increases poverty in urban areas and another time to say that migration spreads epidemic disease and that's literally the only consideration of migration in the roadmap to the millennium development goals that's the the the, the two decade old vision uh, it, more recently uh, uh, it, although it is it, it has uh, amazing individuals in it it's doing very important work Fundamentally, we have to admit that the, the, the core purpose of the, the EU Emergency Trust Fund for Africa is to deter migration uh, with development aid. That's why it exists. Uh, that is the, the guiding principle of its, uh, of its actions. Now, uh, the reason to be optimistic is that uh, th there are cracks in, in that paradigm. You mentioned the, the progress made uh, around the, the, the Sustainable Development Goals in, in 2015 which explicitly recognize the many opportunities for developments that migration brings. And again, that's due to people in the room uh, where you are. Uh, and really, uh, right now, we have a situation where, where uh, uh, more and more uh, people in influential places are starting to realize uh, what, uh, what Shanta said in the, in the clearest terms possible, that the migration is, a, is, is not just a a uh, uh, something that relates in, in some negative way to development. It, it is at the core of development processes. If you look in the historical data of how development has actually happened over the last two or three generations, it is hard to find countries that have successfully sustainably developed economically without increases in migration. Migration has gone hand in hand 
with development for a complex range of reasons that include demographic change, expanding trade and investment networks, rising aspirations, investment in human capital, all of which uh, complement and, and in turn are, are, are sustained by international migration. And we've seen, uh, we've seen especially uh, development agencies starting to experiment with ways to engage with the development process that shape migration rather than try to uh, to deter migration. Uh, Australia and Germany in particular have been leaders in that area and uh, and the, the, uh, the I think especially there are opportunities for for multilaterals to get involved in this area uh, both in terms that, that Shanta specifically referred to which uh, which are advocacy but uh, but but I, I think particularly in, uh, in in terms of piloting in, in terms of trying, new ways of, of engaging with the development process uh, that not only uh, leverage the power of migration for development at the origin, but visibly and tangibly uh, shape it for the benefit of countries of, of destination, where, which, is, which is the fundamental political constraint on all of these things. And th there, uh, uh, this is where I think there are so many opportunities to steer the car away from the wall. There are all kinds of new policies that we can try and then multilaterals in particular are, are, uh, are uniquely positioned to, to show the world can work. Thank you, thank you, Michael. And, and thank you for a reminder that um, much as what we are confronting here is obviously a politically complex debate on something that is on the news day in and day out, he goes back to what I actually think, um, Pietro is right, is also a bit of a philosophical problem with the fact that we, you know, the, the, the development community uh, and the development rhetoric, and particularly in the, in, in the aid world for so long, has in a way perpetrated this notion of uh, migration being the failure of development, so people move when you know development policies fail or where aid does not make a difference, all the way to this vision that migration is development, and you can see how you know how wide the gap is between the two, the two expressions, and frankly also how confusing it is for people listening to, uh, to us discuss it because we say it's everything and the opposite of everything, and also it's interesting both these scenarios where there is you know need for advocacy and. Um, and, and sort of working towards you know, a changing tide, but combined with you know, the need for innovation and the, the careful work that I think Barbara has referred to. And I think this is where, you know, also th these are some of the crossroads that we're also confronting with, is sort of trying to get right the, you know, the, you know, the, what, we, what it is that we're talking about and the relationship, but also trying to work at the, at the issues in ways that would deliver some of that potential, that innovation that we know in, in principle is all there. Um, according uh, according to the to the to the evidence, and we'll move to practice in a minute. But let me take the opportunity now to maybe hear so some of you in the room. Um, a few of you were mentioned, of course, David, who helped negotiate um, both the Neuro Declaration and the SDGs, but also Eric, who works on global governance issues in ways that I think could be very helpful to help us maybe rethink and reimagine um, where we are at the moment with um, uh, with um, uh, the international migration debate. But. Um, let me open the, you know, to the floor um, and, until I go back to the audience for some more specific examples. Let me see if the... No questions? Okay. Oh, one, sorry, Sheila, one, and then Eric at the back. Yes, and can somebody can reopen this so I can see the messages. I think it's gone blank. Thank you, uh, Sheila Page, ODI. <sighs> I wanted to pursue the analogy with things like the, the shift on slavery or on other things, because that seems to be a very interesting idea, which I hadn't heard of on migration yet. But if you think, 
it's not an area where I have any particular expertise, but my impression is the shift on slavery happened for, well, infinite number of reasons, but for two. One, the moral arguments, the Wilberforce approach, but also the change in the economics of, of slavery. In other words, going swiftly away from slavery, which I know nothing about, to migration, where I know a little, we have the two, we, we're coming into it today with the argument that migration is, is development, is good for development. Um, some of us sort of learned economics with Arthur Lewis and Ranis Fein and don't have any difficulty with this as an idea. But there's also the argument that stopping migration is immoral. And I think we may need to try, like the anti-slavery people, to pursue both horses at once. So I'd be sorry if we just pursued the uh, migration is good for you without the migration is good. Thank you. And I think it would be useful to hear from sort of Pieter and others who have been at the, the cold face is the right expression of some of that sort of political debate at the national level trying to construct a narrative that can be persuasive that draws on different sets of evidence and, and arguments. Eric. Yes, uh, <coughs> I, I, I did hire Barbara, <laughs> but, but uh, she did it all. Oh, sorry, Eric Berglof, uh, LSE, but I used to be at the EBRD. Um, but, so I did hire her, but she did all the work herself. And, and I, I just think I would like to hear you say a little bit more in specifics, because um, you know, there was a fundamental transformation of this organization that was so narrowly focused on transition, and transition actually in many cases being about getting rid of people who were sort of underemployed or employed in, in activities that were producing negative value. And so that was a whole uh, kind of rejection of the whole of the idea of, of trying, providing opportunities and so on. And, and so that journey from, from that type of institution to an institution where I think like half the projects now has concrete or, or you know, very close to half or one third of the projects have real inclusion elements and, and things that are carefully measured, that are structured into projects that bankers are owning, I think. I, I think it's just, if you could give a few examples, I think that would really help uh, people understand what, what, you have, what you have done and what, and what this model, I think, for what other institutions could do as well. Thank you, Eric. Um, any more questions? Okay, from back. There's Andrew over there and, I can see, and Nilima at the back, so Andrew. Oh, thank you. Uh, Andrew Shepard from ODI. Um, we've done a lot of work uh, on um, how people escape poverty and sustain their escapes out of extreme poverty. Um, and migration figures increasingly in these, in these stories. Uh, when you take the kind of extreme poverty line, it tends to be, at least in our analysis, it tends to be internal migration within a country. Um, external migration um, does feature. We get some stories of that, but it's a kind of minority of cases. So I'm, I'm thinking that Possibly, um, international migration is of greater relevance to people who are, let's say, between the $1.90 and the $3.10 uh, poverty mark. But I mean, I'd like to test that out on you. Um, but I think you see, I mean, you've talked largely about international migration and the kind of policy dilemmas, crisis, whatever you want to call it. I think the similar sort of things exist at national level. 
So you have urbanization uh, approaches which are unfriendly to migrants. You have uh, social policies which don't recognize migrants' rights and, and so on. So I think there's a, there's a great, reflection, uh, great reflection there. Thank you. Nalima Gulrajani, ODI. Um, I just want to pick up on Sheila's point about um, the moral arguments for migration. I mean, one could have titled this both a driver of development and an obligation of development. And I wondered how important language was. Um, we've all used the term migration, but do we still want to preserve a distinction between economic migration and, and refugees, people fleeing on the back of persecution? Because I think that would drive home the kind of moral argument um, more strongly. But I notice we've collapsed that distinction. Perhaps part of the political battle is using that distinction or not. I'm not, I'm not sure where I stand on that. And then the other question is about the role of aid and aid agencies in particular. Um, increasingly, domestic political narratives are putting pressures on aid agencies to use aid as, as to curb migration effectively. And I was curious about the examples that Michael gave of Australia and Germany, two countries where that political narrative is very salient. In terms of what experiments are happening there, what is the role of the bilateral aid agency in the whole of government context and conversation on migration, and what normatively should it be? Okay, thank you. Let me come back to the panel and doing so also ask them to perhaps elaborate uh, with some more examples on some of their experience before we come back to the uh, discussion. And Shanta, perhaps let me uh, come to you first. I mean, there, there is also a question from um, our online audience I'll put to you, which I think speaks to some extent to some of Andrew's um, uh, questions or challenges around, um, um, you know, how, how this evidence resonates for different groups of people or in different parts of the world. Um, it appears that you focus very much on the receiving side of migration. Apart from remittances from abroad, many countries in the global south face a depletion of human resources due to migration and therefore a potential long-term loss. How do you make migration a more sustainable benefit for those countries that delivers the workforce as well? Um, as well as maybe pick up the, the question from, from Andrew about um, um, you know, people in extreme poverty and whether the, sort of the, the evidence resonates for different groups. Uh, okay, sure. Uh, thanks. Yeah, well, I think actually those are two slightly different questions. I, I think Andrew's right uh, in the sense that the, the uh, benefits of migration, and this is actually picking up what uh, Michael was saying earlier as well, since migration seems to increase with per capita income, you're going to see more migration as countries uh, and people move out of the dollar ninety a day uh, uh, and, and, and above. But uh, that said, I think one of the reasons why you may not have picked up uh, that much on the uh, escaping poverty uh, is that uh, from international migration is that those people leave your data set too when they move. Uh, I mean, there's an interesting paper by, by Michael and Lant Pritchett, I think, uh, where they actually tried to reestimate GDP per natural, as they called it, which is GDP divided by the total number of people born in that country, uh, uh, where, regardless of where they lived. Uh, and uh, you get very different answers. <laughs> I mean, even the, the, you know, what's a low-income, what's a middle-income country uh, can change. So I think we, we have to uh, be aware of that. Now, that's a, I think it's a separate point from the question online, which is a, really about the brain drain. Um, uh, you know, does, does migration lead to 
uh, depletion of, of human capital. And I this I, again, the, the, the evidence seems to be pointing uh, very much in the in the other direction. We're seeing first of all, the remittances are actually very significant. I mean, they they dwarf foreign aid in 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 many countries. But leaving that aside, you actually find that the possibility of migration creates incentives for building human capital in the, in the home country. You found an increase in students entering nursing school in the Philippines, many of whom, very few of whom actually migrated, uh, but that you just had more uh, nurses in the Philippines now. In fact, now, they're, uh, uh, now the next generation is, is, uh, is coming up. So I think we, we can, uh, there's, there's, enough evidence that the migration actually benefits the, the, the people. And then if you, just one other point, which I, you know, it's controversial. I, you know, I live in Washington, D.C. We have, right next to the World Bank, we have uh, George Washington University Hospital. And I hope you never have to go there. But if you have to go there, you realize it's all Ethiopian doctors and nurses. Uh, and then you begin to think, you know, uh, what's happening in Ethiopia <laughs> if they're all here? Well, the, the bottom line is that the, the salary structure in Ethiopia is, is, is such that if you want to pay a doctor who is internationally tradable, you know, who could get a job at GW Hospital in Ethiopia, you have to pay all the doctors in Ethiopia the same salary. And that's the problem. It's not, the, it's, not the, it's not migration, it's the civil service rules that govern uh, the, the payment of, of, of uh, uh, high-skilled high uh, doctors in Ethiopia. If they could reform that, and many countries have done that, which is to say, if you're, international, if you're an international caliber doctor, you get paid in a national salary. Then some of them actually stay in the country. And can I ask, I mean, just as a follow-up, Shant, on that, the, I mean, you mentioned earlier how you think that the bank could, in this case, take more of an advocacy uh, perspective or position. Uh, but how about, in a little bit similar to what we were discussing earlier with Barbara, and we'll hear a bit more about the bank building some of these realities, including you know, the effects that migration has on wages and into the, your, in your loans and your, in your lending operations, and making it you know, sort of building the sort of the practicalities of labor mobility and skills gaps and, and skills program into what the bank does from an operational perspective, in between the evidence and the advocacy piece that you just mentioned earlier. Well, yeah. No, I mean, we do a lot in terms of civil service reform, which I said, you know, I said that's the other side of the brain drain, that you, you, when you have a civil service that is so rigid that you can't pay the really high-skilled people in the civil service a higher salary in order to keep them uh, uh, in, in the country and keep them motivated, then you need civil service reform. You don't want to stop them from moving. That's, that's the, the wrong uh, the solution to that, that problem. I think you really do need to create a, a, a much more flexible civil service. Pietro, do you want to pick up the questions about the sort of the, the you know, some of the interesting dynamics between national debates um, and national policies and what countries do in their development cooperation um, um, work? <clears throat> yeah, uh, maybe just a, a side note on, on, on this exchange also about is there going to be a, a a paradigm shift on how we perceive migration. I mean, obviously, I also don't have a crystal ball, so I don't know what's going to happen, but just an additional thought to throw in there. If you would have asked in the 40s and the 40s, early 50s, uh, a person in Paris, 
if he could conceive a system in the future, near future, where Germans would walk in, work, free movement, and so on, he would probably thought that you were completely crazy. So things are possible. Uh, we've seen it also in other regions of the world, um, both in, in the negative sense, where free movement was intrinsic to Africa, and then through colonial powers we draw artificial borders, and now slowly the African continent again trying to move out of these borders by creating, at least at the regional level, uh, free movement frameworks. So, again, just, a, just an additional thought. On, on your question, when it comes to, to the national debate, I think it, this is certainly something, uh, if I'm looking back and with hindsight, looking at what happened in Switzerland with the Global Compact, it's only a lesson that, that um, we've learned that there was probably not enough debate with the public around migration issues. So we certainly didn't, didn't frame it in a way that it would respond to um, what the public in Switzerland would have wanted to hear or how they perceive migration. And I think this is in general a risk that, that when we talk about migration, we slip into this saying, well, you know, migration is being used as a scapegoat argument. Whereas, you know, when people get unemployed, they blame the migrants. And there is a, um, a fallacy there, a problem there, if we then say, look, this is just a scapegoat argument. But we don't solve the underlying problem of unemployment. In Switzerland, for example, I mean, we have a very low unemployment rate, but there is a, a structural problem of unemployment of people aged 55 and more. And they tend to, that tends to be an argument against migration. And so one line could be to simply say, look, this is just a scapegoat argument. There is hardly any migrant taking away any jobs for people 55 and older. But that doesn't speak to the people. That doesn't solve the issue. So we, we in that sense, and this is, not <laughs> that is not a problem, this is not a challenge for the development cooperation, but this is something that we, we can't we can't simply negate that there is a perception there, and we have to, to, as a government, for example, we have to take that serious, otherwise we can't get out of it. And this is sort of the national perspective. If we then try to bring in the international perspective, and this is another challenge because, at least in Switzerland, sort of the perception of multilateralism is still broader, painted in a sense, it's, it's inefficient, it's cumbersome, it's tends to be undemocratic. I mean, Switzerland being sort of a direct democracy where you can vote on everything and anything. Uh, what happened in the UN seems another galaxy and hence difficult to, to perceive. Nonetheless, I think it's important to, to continue working on that bridge because it defines the work that we are doing and bringing the multilateral, the international point into our debate. So when it comes to the de definitions, I think there was a question in the room about is it useful or not, and, and what happens? Is it sort of, are we mixing refugees and migrants together? Uh, trust me, at least in the negotiations of the Global Compact, that was a clear-cut message from a vast majority of governments. We need to have a clear distinction between refugees and migrants. 
mainly also because there are legal requirements and obligations attached to the one side, to the refugees, international requirements, and on the migrant side there is none. And I think this is what sovereign governments still want to perceive. But it speaks to another, again, to the problem of is it useful to then define more clearly also between irregular migrants and regular migrants, for example. And this is a two-edged sword, because on the one hand side, it would help you to say, well, uh, to, to be a bit more precise in your narrative. But it's a, it might become a slippery slope, because then you end up in the, 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 the good migration and the bad migration. And yet, I think, when it comes to the migration hump and to looking at what the root causes are, I think it might be helpful to, to look at it also from that prism. I mean, what are the driving forces be behind migration? And a country like Sri Lanka, which is probably pretty much at the, at the top of the hump if you, if you take GDP per capita and, and, uh, and, and its um, purchase power parity, it has indeed a quite a high level of immigration, but it is regular immigration. These are migrant workers going from Sri Lanka to the Gulf countries or to Malaysia. I grant you there are additional huge challenges when it comes to human rights and labor rights, but purely from an administrative point of view, these are, these are regular migrants with a work contract moving from A to B. And then if you go to Mali, for example, you also have you have a much lower GDP, you have a similar immigration rate, but the immigration pattern is completely different because most of them leave Mali in the hope to find work in Cote d'Ivoire and they don't find any work. So there are disparities in that sense and it, it helps to when we come to the question of data, for example, of understanding the phenomena behind it, to look at these categories, to understand what kind of migration are we talking about. Is it forced? Is it is is the, was there a driver behind it? Is it or is it voluntary? Uh, and I think this is something that then, if we bring it back into the national context, can certainly help also to shape the discussion. Because unfortunately, in countries like Switzerland, but we've seen it also in other countries when it came to the Global Compact, the perception is still that the entire African continent has their bags packed and is ready to come to Europe when the facts are clear. I mean, 80% or something of African migration happens within Africa. And of course, if Gallup polls goes to Senegal and asks people on the street, do you want to migrate to Europe? They will say yes. I mean, it's, it's if you go out in the streets in London and you ask somebody, do you want to have a Mercedes? Everybody will say yes. If then they understand how much a Mercedes costs, then the, 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 the picture becomes different. So I think all of this to say that we, we have to be much more precise in what we communicate, how we communicate. We can't vilify those who are against migration. Uh, we, we can't sort of uh, just paint a, a rose picture about migration itself. It has challenges. And yes, from an economic perspective, the figures are quite telling. But the social cost behind it, the, the, the impact it has on, on social cohesion, these are difficult to measure, but these are political realities that we have to take into consideration if we want to continue shaping immigration policy that is in our benefit. And the last point, I mean, Switzerland is the best case. Our economy 
would simply collapse without migrants. We have one third of our workforce are foreign born. It wouldn't work. At the same time, we have our own a history of emigration. My, my grandparents, my grandparents, they, they migrated to France because they weren't, there wasn't any work. And you continue telling these stories and the reaction is still, yeah, but today, you know, Today, there are too many, and there are not those that we want. And so, a lot of work ahead of us. Thank you, and I think this is an important reminder for all of us that work in the evidence business. This is the topic where having these mountains of evidence, compelling and, you know, and uncontroversial, and yet, you know, devising the narrative is so, you know, is proven to be so much more complex. And I think part of it is also recognizing that you know, that evidence is also composed of a quite a lot of diversity that applies in, in, in different parts of the world and it'd be great to get maybe maybe Shantan and Michael maybe to reflect a little bit on that. But Pieter, there's one short follow-up from, well, short, an important follow-up that I think it would be good for you to pick up from, from uh, a question online asking whether picking up on the transition from the MDGs to the SDGs, whether the fact that migration policy dialogue has largely been about the way that the governments see and manage migration, whereas the SDGs are more people-focused, is there value in making the migration debate more people-focused? And perhaps that help us bring to Shanta's views about that shift in, in, in perspective. And do you see, I mean, because you've worked at the interface between the two, do you think that as we use the Agenda 2030, is there something to sort of shift the debate a, more, a bit more on people? Thank you very much for the question, because that was indeed a point that I wanted to make and I forgot to make. <laughs> because that is, that is another critical game-changer, a potential critical game-changer in working more with the 2030 Agenda and the spirit that comes along with the 2030 Agenda. Also by simply understanding or changing the paradigm a little bit what international cooperation is about and, and what the limits are of traditional international cooperation. Understanding that the future of Africa is not mainly driven by international cooperation, it's driven by a wider range of factors. And all of them have to come together for Africa to develop. And we have a role to play, we have a responsibility to play, but we also have a, a, an interest to play uh, in, in, in its stake. And so by bringing in the 2030 Agenda, how I understand it as a universal agenda, as, a, uh, as a, an agenda where states have a role to play, but also the private sector, uh, academia, civil society, and so on, that sustainable development is really understood as a societal task and not as a uh, donor agency task, I think that will play in very favorably also with migration because then you understand that when we talk about both regular or irregular flows of migrants from Africa or from other continents, what governments can do is shape partnerships together with other governments but also in particular also with other uh, stakeholders. What we hear more and more also from African countries, and it's, it's high time, is that they, they want to end aid dependency. They, they are not interested in this classic cooperation coming from the North and so on, these, these do-gooders uh, that, that want to, to, uh, to save the world. And, and I think by combining the 2030 Agenda with the migration opportunities and challenges in, the, in this context of reshaping the way that we work together, as governments, but also with other stakeholders, can influence also the perception of migration because it changes the way that, that each of us understands what our roles and limitations are in the, 
in, in, shaping, in shaping migration, and I agree with Michael, it's, it's about shaping migration. And it's not about more or less migration, but it's making sure that migration is in the best interest of all. Okay, on this, I'll come to you in a minute, but let me just ask Barbara and Michael to add a few more practical examples, because on these issues of moving away from traditional divides between rich and poor countries or sort of north and south, I do think that the space you know, where the EBRD works is particularly interesting because it's sort of Europe and its neighborhood, and a lot of those countries are you know, neither poor or rich, as a lot of the sort of emerging economies or middle-income countries, some of these dynamics are not so black and white and is where the, you know, the, the dynamics of countries of origin and destinations effectively blend. So in, that, in this context and with the specific focus and remit around attracting and managing private investment, as Eric suggested, give us a bit of a flavor about what you've done, what you've learned about changing things from within the organization to incentivize operational staff to change the way they work and, and why now and how you're planning to use some of that uh, to the bank being engaged in, in migration work. Thank you. Thank you, Malta. Um, I, I think it's a lot about mind shift, mindset shifts, and in a way that applies to an organization such as CBRD, but it also applies to countries and how they look at migration um, and how they can look at the, the, the positive sides and, 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 and how they can, in a way, benefit from migration. So um, within EBRD, we started to... Um, um, define inclusion and, and gender in a way that spoke the same language um, as, as the bank spoke. So we, we looked at inequality of opportunity, we looked at factors that could inhibit equality of opportunity, and therefore what we as a private sector investment bank could do to open up um, access to, to economic opportunity. So um, we took in that context a very specific approach that is quite different, quite unique, um, but that really um, plays to our strength. Um, and then we started to come up with, with products. So I remember the first time we had a, pro uh, a project in the manufacturing um, um, sector. And a lot of MDBs do investments in manufacturing. That is, per se, nothing special at all. But what we actually did is we looked at the client and said, what are your skilled needs? And how can we help you as an investor to address those? Because if you have a better skilled workforce, you can expand, you can grow, you can innovate, etc. And that was the first time that, that the bank, as such, asked that question. And it resonated. It resonated with our clients. So, sorry. Um, thank you very much. Um, so, so I think this is, this is the important message. You need to find something that, within, within a particular remit, within a particular space, creates a unique value added. And at that point, our banker started to listen up and, and said, oh, actually, this is something we can sell. Actually, this is something that our clients like, and it's not just manufacturing, it's power and energy, it's natural resources, it's property and tourism, it's, it's whatever it is, agribusiness. Um, and here we have a new product, here we have a new way in which we can add value. Um, and that then started that journey, and that, that allowed the bank to, to move in a direction where um, a focus on gender and inclusion became, became normal and, and the thing to do. So I think if we look at, if we take that analogy in a way and look at migration today, um, as you said, we um, operate in, in, in a region um, that really stretches from Estonia to Egypt and, and Morocco to, to Mongolia, a very, very diverse region. Um, and we recently looked at migration flows from within the region, um, but also then migration flows coming from outside. And it's very difficult. You can't just say, oh, countries are countries of origin or destination or transit. Most countries are, are all of those things in a combination. Um, and um, But it's actually to understanding what are the needs of those countries and how can we um, 
by bringing in the leverage of the private sector, try to facilitate better solutions to better manage migration. So that could be, for example, um, by facilitating and um, strengthening bilateral agreements between countries that focus on circular migration, where people who come from a particular um, country actually gain skills in another country and then return, or actually very often gain skills in their country of origin in order to then migrate, but on a, on a formal basis in a well-managed way. So um, these are now the areas that we're thinking about and, and looking at the policy level, how we can bring the private sector into these kind of discussions and, and in shaping these models, also with the EU on, on a multilateral level, etc. Thank you, Barbara. And that's a perfect segue to ask Michael to tell us a little bit about something called the Global Skills Partnership that him and others have sort of been championing and working on and now experimenting with. Because I think on this, uh, on what Barbara just said about identifying viable and, and sort of viable, and, you know, politically viable and interesting and innovative entry points for changes in practice is where I think there is a lot of the potential for innovation that Michael mentioned earlier. And I think in this, you know, around issues of skills shortages and demographics change is where some of the exciting innovation is happening. So Michael, can you tell us a little bit about the Global Skills Partnership, what's going on, what's happening there, and, and how you see that as a model of innovation for others um, perhaps to replicate um, in, other, in other sectors? Thank you so much. Uh, I, yes, a, a global skill partnership is a is a is a way of of demonstrating at small scale how things can be different, and I, I think that has a really important and complementary role alongside uh, advocacy. And ju just to nod to Sheila's uh, uh, very visionary question about broader social changes, uh, showing people concrete ways that things can be different in practical terms has been a part of important uh, big changes about uh, about uh, uh, social institutions, including uh, about the, the enslavement of, uh, of Africans uh, in the past, alongside uh, moral messaging and, and, uh, and, and pure communications. Uh, so what is a migration to a lot of people now? If you walk around the street and say, well, do you want more migration or less migration? They're going to look at what they see in front of them. A lot of it is irregular. A lot of it is low skill. In origin countries, people are deeply suspicious for reasons that have been mentioned of higher skill migration because they see what it is. It is people leaving and taking their skills with them. Uh, there is uh, there's an alternative uh, to to just uh, more or less of what is happening now, and it is it is trying new ways to shape what it is. And here, I think there is just a, a vast range of of, uh, of opportunities to innovate. One of these is the, this idea of global skill partnership that is it's it's been. Uh, specifically in, endorsed by the Secretary General by 163 countries in the Marrakesh Compact. And it's the idea of a, of a bilateral agreement between two countries, a migrant destination country and a migrant origin country. And it's an exchange. The migrant origin country agrees to provide uh, training for potential migrants before they migrate inside the country of origin in skills that are specifically and immediately needed at the destination. And in exchange, the destination country provides job placement for those people uh, in shortage occupations, meaning that their employment will allow employers to create more jobs for natives in those countries. Uh, and the destination country provides finance and technology transfer. 
to the migrant origin country, not only to carry out that, that training for potential migrants, but for non-migrants as well, bundled together. That's a global skill partnership. Uh, it is a huge opportunity for tangible, visible, mutual benefit from migration that is certainly going to be a part of, of the, the next generation or two in Europe and elsewhere. Uh, the destination country gets migrants out of this deal that are uh, tangibly bringing immediate uh, benefits to the country of destination, creating jobs for natives, uh, self-sufficient, uh, quickly integrating the things people want from migration uh, and are suspicious about in, 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 in some facets of current migration, the origin country gets stronger training institutions, more, not, not a drain, more human capital, not a drain of human capital, uh, and, uh, and the many indirect benefits that come along with, it, with international linkages, like the transfer of ideas and, and, and remittances. Uh, and in general, it, it's a way for, for countries to work in partnership to take control of migration in ways that benefit them, rather than uh, the, the, the current just uh, uh, incredibly limiting debate we have about should there be more or less. It is a way to actively change uh, what migration uh, is. Now, uh, the, this is not uh, something that, that I invented at all. I, I, I've, I've pushed a, a specific formulation of the, the idea of, uh, of, of, of development agencies engaging with migration around skills in this exact form that I spelled out. There are many, many other kinds of skill partnerships that have going, been going on long before I came along, and, and wouldn't, I wouldn't call them global skill partnerships just because that's the specific formulation, but there are many others. Australia for the last 10 years uh, has been supporting a network of vocational training centers around the Pacific, including in very poor parts of the Pacific, training uh, workers, including potential migrants with Australian recognized qualifications uh, in targeted occupations that are needed around the region as well as in Australia. Germany for several years has been uh, running a series of pilot projects, most of them in the health sector, uh, helping uh, uh, nurses come from countries like Vietnam, the Philippines, uh, uh, Serbia, to work in Germany in shortage occupations, get their skills recognized, get placed with employers in a public-private partnership, and, uh, overcoming so many uh, practical obstacles that you can imagine along the way of getting skills recognized, getting people in Hanoi German language training, getting the, the health ministry and the labor ministry in Germany to cooperate with each other, getting the immigration ministry to allow them into the country, uh, just in, in incredible innovations, uh, in, in my mind, along uh, in the magnitude of, of, of inventing the, the transistor, because it's just such a, such a difficult thing to pull off. These countries have, have done these things, and there's, a, there's just an enormously more scope to apply those uh, practical innovations that can demonstrate to people how much better this can work than it does now uh, in settings of, of, of current and future migration pressure. Uh, for example, uh, uh, Germany has been doing this in, in Vietnam, uh, but, but not in, in Mali and Ethiopia. Uh, and, and there are many, many other, other ways and margins on, on which the, the, these things could be, uh, could be tried. Thank you. So we now have another sort of short of 15 minutes for a final round of questions. I mean, we'll uh, come back to the panels for one or two points. So I had David on the list. I think we now have a good sense about both what the policy landscape is and then some very concrete example of the kind of things that have been, uh, have been tried. Um, uh, so let's see if we can 
add a few more to this debate. So, David first. Thank you very much, Martin. I just want you need a mic and introduce yourself. Thank you. Uh, David Donahue. I just wanted to come back on a couple of points that Pietro made. Um, he made many interesting points, but just on, on, on a couple. Um, if I look back at the documents in recent years which have brought migration to the, the heart of development, as Martin is putting it, it was relatively easy to get that concept into the 2030 agenda. But believe me, that there wasn't much resistance. We then had the, uh, the New York Declaration. Uh, again, we were able to get the same concept in, but uh, more elaborately. And again, I'd have to say that most member states are quite happy with the idea of, of a close link between uh, migration and development. But in retrospect, I wonder really uh, whether we um, courted disaster almost by having a separate, detailed global compact on migration. This may seem a bit provocative at this stage, but it seems to me that the problem was with the New York Declaration, we were able to combine migration and refugees as, as a single topic, and we were therefore able to blur the distinction between them, even though we had to be formally correct with the language, but we were able to bring in um, vulnerable, desperate migrants by implication. But when we got two separate global compacts, we were forced to define much more clearly that we were talking about regular migration. And I, I think a difficulty has therefore been that many countries got worked up, they got unduly excited uh, about the global compact, even though, as we all know, it's, it's a set of options, effectively. But they got worked up because they feared that somehow there was a, an underhand agenda relating to irregular migrants. So I don't have an easy answer for it, but I suspect that we went the wrong way by going for two separate global compacts at a point when it might have been easier to, to, to go into more detail within the New York Declaration. It may seem heretical a few years later, but I think that when I see the reaction of many countries in, 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 in Europe in particular, I wonder, could it have been avoided? And it's really, the, the thought has just sparked my mind by how Pietro described public reaction, for example, within Switzerland. And Switzerland was by no means the most uh, uh, alarmist uh, country. Uh, but I just wonder in retrospect whether we created an extra problem for ourselves by advertising a separate global compact on both issues uh, when we had actually reached a certain amount of um, consensus and good common ground in the earlier documents. I don't have an answer, but it just uh, it crossed my mind that we, we were the authors of our own misfortune later on. <laughs> this is how deep the, the, the doubts <laughs> ran in all of us part of this in the last few years. Uh, if somebody wants to react to uh, sort of uh, David's insight, benefits of insights, and then I'm sure Pietro will want to come back to that. But uh, do I have other questions? Uh, I also saw Sheila shaking her head on the, on the Global Skills Partnerships. <laughs> so Sheila first and then Dipti. Actually, uh, let's go to Dipti first because she's here. She hasn't spoken yet. And then Sheila. Thank you. Yes. No, thank you. But I, I was um, in two minds after that uh, intervention, whether to follow right away. I'm Dipti from IOM. Um, and maybe just uh, before the actual question, I just have a comment about uh, the GCM. And I think 
you know the conventions i mean you take the refugee convention you take the and and everything that goes around it but then just one political change can lead even to you know questioning that itself and and we have seen states uh, sway with their numbers from one end to the other and creating really something which we had totally not foreseen in spite of you know so much commitment and when we thought that things are just about to go in the right direction for example with the new york declaration we thought that it's only going to get better and not probably the other way so you know you it's very difficult to really foresee and most of the times it's looking like it's at look uh, like looking at a crystal ball really uh, but i think uh, my comment uh, my question was also regarding when we talked about the social implications you know when we have a, of course the, you know that we have the numbers and the evidence and still we just don't seem to cut across that that point about you know why we still have to discuss about migration or driver of development why actually it's in the sdgs it's for everybody to see and you know maybe we should go beyond that and it does that that moment just doesn't seem to be there and in that context we one i mean one can wonder about the involvement of different sets of actors because for example you know when we talk about sdgs and we talk about international migration or development actors what about the local government and local actors you know and where the discussion really at the grassroots level and where about all those perceptions where things are perceived in a different way you know how do you really get into them them onto this momentum i think that's something to talk about i mean we have talked about private sector and csos and multi stakeholders but i think working at a local level is something which really needs to get gain some speed thanks one more from Sheila, and then we'll come back to the panel because we're beginning to run out of time. So. Thank you. What I was frowning at was, speaking as a migrant, that the idea that governments should take control of migration, which I find incredibly offensive. It's also economically inefficient for governments to promote very specific training of people for this, this set of vacancies and this set of uh, jobs at the moment. Training nurses is fine. That's normal, generic training, which will be useful in a variety of contexts and doesn't then bind the nurse to work for this employer only. The Australian approach is, again, training for general skills shortages in the region. So again, economically speaking, that's right. We've always known that it is wrong for governments to get involved in direct training for I of individuals for individual posts in individual firms. It is just as inefficient for migrants as it is within the country. I think we need to be very careful to notice not to effectively uh, reproduce indentured labor. Sorry, we seem to be going back to the 17th century uh, throughout here. But uh, telling people you will be trained to do this job in that company, you can migrate to work in that job. If you leave it, you must go home. That is not acceptable. I am someone who, as a migrant, has changed my purpose of migration two or three times. I've changed my intention for how long I plan to live at least twice. I think that one needs to be aware that migrants cannot be controlled. Thank you. So we definitely have something from Michael to pick up there. Um, unless there are other questions, can I ask perhaps, uh, um, um, uh, actually Michael first to respond directly to sort of Sheila's point and then let me close with, uh, with uh, Pietro's maybe comments on whether with hindsight we should have not <laughs> bothered at all with the global compass anyway. <laughs> Sorry, Michael first. <laughs> Um, thank you. The, the Global Skilled Partnership idea endorsed by 163 countries in the Marrakesh Convention has nothing to do with indentured labor at all, uh, just absolutely nothing. 
it, it is a way to open up uh, more opportunities for migrants and more opportunities for countries to benefit from migration. I think we just need to take a step back and, uh, and uh, appreciate the fact that there are just unbelievably vast uh, pressures for migration that are coming. Uh, I often highlight the, the, the net increase of 800 million workers. That's the net increase of 800 million workers in sub-Saharan Africa only by the year 2050, uh, which the World Bank uh, uh, estimates, Dion Filmer and Louise Fox estimate that ab about a quarter of those people will find formal employment in the countries of their birth. Uh, at the same time of, of just uh, enormous demographic uh, decline in parts of Europe, uh, there is going to be large-scale migration for sure. Uh, on current terms, it is uh, just e extraordinarily difficult. If it is to be low-scale migration, that is going to cause enormous political problems and destinations. If it is to be high-scale migration, in which destination countries that will benefit from it have no direct involvement, for example, in technology uh, transfer and financial subsidies, and that's what a global skill partnership is, then it is going to be rightly regarded as a crime by the countries of origin. And global skill partnerships are a way for countries to work together to shape migration in ways that mutually benefit them. And I, it's unclear to me what the alternative is. If it's to be no lawful channels at all, I think that that is uh, 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 not realistic. If it is to be massive, low-skill migration, I think that that is also not politically realistic. If it is to be unilaterally managed, high-skill migration, that is, uh, that is uh, uh, tremendously ethically complex. And what the Global Skill Partnerships are, are a, a proposal to, to, uh, to, to, to uh, uh, shape uh, higher-skill migration in ways that are mutually beneficial. I, I'm uh, very pleased to know that uh, Last week, Belgium uh, began piloting a global skill partnership uh, called PALIM, a, a program to address uh, labor shortages with innovative labor migration management, an acronym that only a development agency could love. Uh, over the next year and a half, they are working directly with Morocco to train uh, IT workers in Morocco for Morocco in combination with training IT workers in Morocco uh, and helping them find jobs with uh, employers in Flanders. Uh, it has nothing to do whatsoever with restricting migrants' rights. It is opening uh, new possibilities for Moroccans to realize their dreams and aspirations in both Morocco and, and Europe. And I'm, I'm just uh, delighted to see that we're moving forward with trying new things uh, rather than, uh, than being stymied in inaction. Thank you, Michael. Um, and you can see how there is a real need to move to this kind of very practical and detailed conversation on the design of these initiatives to, uh, to work out uh, how they will work out in practice. Uh, Pietro, back to the big picture to finish, um, the two global compacts. Was it worth it? Um, well, I don't know. Yes. <laughs> no. <laughs> yes. No, I, I'm hesitant, obviously, because, I mean, in Switzerland, we are still in the process. I mean, we, we are in discussion with Parliament, and Switzerland was not in Marrakesh and so on. And, and so my hesitation is influenced by that. But if I dare to take sort of my Swiss position, my Swiss hat on the side, and look at it from a more neutral, which is also quite Swiss, but anyway, <laughs> uh, position, um, then I would have to say I understand where your, your arguments, and indeed when we negotiated the, the, the New York Declaration, um, 
I, in Bern, pushed very hard to try to bring together as closely as possible the two issues of refugees and migrants. Because from a political, domestic political point of view, the main challenge, in my view, is what public perception sees as irregular migrants. And the situation in Libya, for example, I mean, the numbers vary, but I think more I mean, between 30 or 40 percent of them are, are refugees, but the, the majority of them would actually not qualify as refugees. And the numbers are going down in, in the Mediterranean, they have gone down quite significantly. Nonetheless, at the, at the time, that was the main political challenge. And finding, to the extent possible, a political commitment to address migrants in vulnerable situations was, I think, the ambition. And thereby closing some protection gaps that existed due to the setup that we took after the Second World War of having a refugee convention and nothing on the migration side. Now, at the same time, you also know why it came to why we had two global compacts. To, to be, again, a bit simplistic, the, the sort of the, the big push to have a summit on refugees and migrants after decades that the Global South had asked for a summit on migration and the North said, no, 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 was the migration crisis in Europe. So for good reasons, some of the countries in Africa and Asia thought, you know, I mean, now we have finally a summit on refugees and migrants. We won't allow it for that to only become about refugees or displacement. We want to have now a proper debate on migration at large. And so the idea, as you know, came driven mainly also from Bangladesh, for example, to have a global compact. And then another interesting debate came out between should we have the global compact for refugees already adopted in 2016, or should it go in parallel? And also there, the Global South said, no, no, no. You're not going to do, we're not going to finalize everything now and you leave us with the global compact for migration on the side. We're going to have a parallel process, global compact refugees and global compact migration. So by extension, that was to some extent a fallback into a north-south debate to some extent. And it responded a bit to the necessities of traditional positions that the north and the south had. How it played out, I think it's actually interesting as a, as a way forward. On the GCR side, we'll see what, for example, what the, the, the Global Refugee Forum will, will present at the end of this year. On the GCM side, we will see how it, how it evolves. Uh, but I think it, it has generated a, a political impetus. It has generated a, a very intense debate in Europe. It took a very negative spin, but maybe something, something good can, can come out of it after all, because I think this is, this is an avenue that we have to continue in addressing these challenges um, together. Uh, local actors? Absolutely. I mean, cities, local authorities, this is the future that we want to go. SCC is what the Swiss government has been working together uh, in many uh, various platforms, including us with IOM, and, and, uh, and, and I think that, that could be a very interesting uh, shift also by by changing a little bit the power structures of our debate, just bringing in another actor in, in, in changing a bit the debate around migration. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Pietro. Thank you for the panel. I'll come back to you in a second. With a, um, just let me finish this with two um, thoughts. 
Um, the first is that as this uh, exchange between Pietro and David, um, uh, I think, uh, showed, this is a fascinating policy story. Right? There is a, this is the ultimate battleground on international cooperation, a sense of common purpose, and is one that need, we need to continue to have because it's a story that is worth telling. Everything that has happened in the last couple of years around this debate is worth sort of sharing and reflecting on and learning from, and that needs to continue. At the same time, we are at a crossroad now because as the sort of the richness of this debate demonstrates, we are now in a very different place than we were a few years ago where all of this story began. Um, we are now at that crossroad of the many, the one where we really can take action to change things in practice. So alongside the policy story that we need to continue to, uh, to tell, we've got to move towards you know, the practical implication of the grounds that we are prepared. And there I take away two things. One is Shanta's sort of optimistic vision about the tide that is turning and will turn and, and getting ready for it. I think to do that, advocacy is fine, but the careful work that... Uh, Barbara mentioned is equally important, as is the innovation and all the risks that that requires, including you know the dilemmas about how one designs uh, you, know, you know new interventions in different space. And as we do that, as Barbara explained earlier, there is no reason and no need to do all of it thinking about migration. A lot of it is actually not about migration. It might be about skills. It might be about uh, you know the role of you know women entrepreneurs. It could be about you know, the reality of climate change. So let's be a bit politically smart about this and see how many more entry points for, in, for innovation and careful work we've got to try to translate the fascinating policy story into uh, practice and reality in different contexts. So that is grounds for optimism in my view. We've, I think we've gone quite a long way from the first conversation that we had in this room um, a few years ago. And uh, thank you to Shanta, Barbara, Pietro and Michael for being with us once again. And watch this space because clearly this is not the end of the journey. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, Find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Mm -hmm.